Hello, wonderful TFC community. Welcome to episode number three of Black and White Conversations. Ashley and I are doing a series of podcasts with the intention of improving understanding and sharing our experiences to help bring awareness to the issue of racism. Our hope is that these episodes will invite anyone of any color, of any background, to engage in the learning process with us. And we feel that the solution to ending racism is having open conversations without the fear of saying the wrong thing so that we can come together and build a better society. These podcasts are going to be on the Foot Collective YouTube channel. And before we record every new episode, we're going to go there and check out comments so that we can reply to them in each episode. Black and White Conversations is all about learning, so there's no sponsors. But if you want more resources to go deeper in your learning process, you can head to thefootcollective.com and click on the Understanding Racism tab for more stuff. In episode number three, Ashley and I talk about the Jane Elliott experiment. We talk about policing. And Ashley shares a few stories about her life where she's encountered racism. Hope you enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. It's the TFC Audio Project. Hello, wonderful humans. Welcome to our third episode of Black and White Conversations, where Ashley Harper and I have conversations to help improve understanding on the topic of racism. Our aim is to contribute constructive input to the global conversation and share our learning journeys uh, and some stories about our lived experience. The title might be called Black and White, but this show is all about digging into all the gray in between. Ashley, thanks for taking the time again this morning to share your perspective to the world. And uh, yeah, welcome to the show again. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. I'm so happy to be back. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's a lovely sunny Saturday. It's getting cooler here in Ottawa, but uh, yeah, I'm doing well. What about yourself? I'm doing awesome. You know, it's it's still scorching down here in the deep part of texas and, is it ever not scorching down there oh and you know i'm you know and depending on where you are in texas i mean some parts of texas it's hot like 10 months out of the year wow it's really it's kind of sad we get well it's funny because if all you do is replace hot with cold it's the same thing here in ottawa <laughs> <laughs> i know it's everybody wants what they can't have right but exactly it's all good it's it's pretty nice i can't complain very nice. So we chatted about, uh, I checked this morning, there's no comments on episode number one on YouTube. And episode number two will go live next week on iTunes and also on YouTube. But I think I'm just going to post this episode today on YouTube, uh, so that it's out there in the wild. And um, yeah, so do you want to start by just recapping episode one and two? Um, you know, your thoughts on it or anything that you'd like to add or, um, you know, reflections from them? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, again, I'm so happy to be here. Nick and I, you know, we're not the experts. Nick is just this really cool human being that just like fluttered into the world some sort of way, right? <laughs> you have to stop complimenting me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's the funniest thing because now, you know, I can see his face and it's, you know, red a little bit. No, I'm kidding. But um, no, we're not the experts here. I'm Ashley and Nick and I, um, you know, we met each other through the Footner program. Um, and then, you know, during this time, this really divisive time right now, you know, we connected to try to create a, a really safe space for people to feel comfortable to talk about their perspectives and their experiences when it comes to what's happening right now in our world between, um, in one of our communities. Um, you know, there's a big movement with the Black Lives Matter because there's a lot of um, 
you know, this community is really hurting. There's a lot of police brutality that they're experiencing. And um, so we really just wanted to create a space where everyone on any end of the spectrum can come in and share their experiences and their perspectives, and then hopefully get some knowledge and we can learn from you guys too. Um, And then in podcast number two, we just really kind of talked about slavery and the inception of slavery, um, you know, where it kind of took a a sinister turn, if you will. And, um, you know, we really kind of dug into that. So please, please uh, listen to podcast number two. That one was pretty cool. Well, they're both cool. Um, But we just, we really just, we want to make the world a better place. And we know that we are, again, we're not the experts. We don't have all the answers. Um, But I do believe you can still, you know, everyone in this world is important and we all have a role to play and we can make someone's life better. You know, Mm -hmm. someone's life should be better because you're here, you know, someone's day. So um, we're just trying to unravel, you know, this whole thing and, it's, it's really tough that, you know, this, I know normally I, I sound kind of put together, but this, this last week was pretty tough here in the Americas, um, just with a lot of the stuff that was happening. So yeah, please come back and join us. Um, we just really want to create a space of love and we just have pure intentions. You know, we just want to make the world better. We want to help. We want to use our resources to you know, elevate the voice of the people that feel like they're not heard. And it would be the same thing if it were a group of women that had an issue like voting, you know, um, it would be any group of people. But right now we have an issue with the, a segment of our brothers and sisters, you know, and if you're a human being, you understand that if our brothers and sisters are hurting, we have to help. And so that's what we're here for. Amazing. Tilt your uh, camera down just a tiny bit so that we don't lose sight of your, there we go. That's good. That's good. Cause you're kind of getting submerged under the bottom border of the screen. There you go. You're good. Uh, we also talked about privilege a little bit in episode number two and sort of unpacked, um, you know, the meaning, almost the meaning of privilege, but also add a little bit of context to it. Cause I think the word privilege is talked about a lot and I think it deserves uh, some attention to kind of discuss. So we chatted about that too. So yeah, that gives a great recap of what we went through in one and two. And, you know, Ashley, you sent me that, uh, you sent me that a while ago, that, um, blue eye, brown eye experiment, um, by Jane Elliott. And I had watched a bit of it before, but I watched the full thing this morning. And so I think there's a lot, we could almost focus on just that because there is so much to garner so many, um, lessons and insights to garner from that um, beyond just the experiment itself. So I'm excited to dig into that. And I'd also like to chat a bit about current events uh, because I wasn't really aware of, you know, I'm not aware of what's going on in the world at large. And so I'm sure a lot of people listening to this might not be aware of some of these things as well, which made for a, you know, a tough week for you, like you said, a heavy week. Um, so if, it, if you're cool with it, let, why don't we start with digging into the Jane Elliott experiment? Yeah. And then at the end, we'll talk about current events. Uh, we'll share some stories and then uh, we'll finish with um, that kind of uh, monologue that we did last time, because I think that's a really cool little piece to end off on. And that was a great idea. Yeah. Full, credit, full credit to Ashley for that. Oh, credit us for that. Credit us. It found <laughs> us just like we found each other. So it's like all it. good. 
So do you want to introduce the Jane Elliott experiment and talk about sort of give people a little bit of background of what it is, and then we can uh, talk about different points related to it. Sure. Jane Elliott, um, there's an experiment. Uh, Jane Elliott was a, an elementary school teacher. Um, and so the day after, I believe it was the day after, you'll have to do your research and please, you know, feel free to research anything you hear me say and correct me if I'm wrong. But I believe she did this experiment the day after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. She did. I can confirm that because I just did it this morning. And that date is, he was killed on April 4th, 1968. So she, and she, yeah, she did this the day after. Yeah. She, um, when she came into her classroom, you know, they called him, his name was Martin Luther King Jr. And so one of her students or many of her students said, you know, Miss Elliot, why did they kill a king last night? And that's what prompted her to do this experiment. And so mm -hmm. this experiment was designed to help children understand some of the difficult, you know, without explaining exactly what happened, but to help them understand what was happening in the world at the time. There was a divide, we which we're still experiencing um, in different degrees, but there was a great divide. Um, you know, the remnants of segregation and, you know, civil war and, all of that stuff. And um, she did, did this experiment, which I highly encourage, you know, all the listeners to go and see if you haven't seen it, but she divided this group of kids up into the blue eyed students and the brown eyed students. And, you know, Nick, you might have to help me with this one. This one's, okay. um, it's fresh in my brain. So, you know, yeah, she... it, it really, yeah, you might have to help me. I remember, but it's kind of hard to, it's a little challenging to kind of explain without seeing it because it's it's really impactful right like it's very crazy yeah and like you said you know it's kind of you know i hate to bring this back to feet but you can explain to someone why a certain type of shoe is good for them it doesn't really mean anything when they're told that but when they experience it it can be highly impactful because it's an yeah. experience-based learning um, scenario. And this was exactly that. When I watched it, it was, you can explain racism all you want, but it really, people just don't have the template or the, the feelings in their body to understand what it feels like. And by putting kids, these kids through this experiment, which basically she divided a group of students into brown eyes, blue eyes, into two categories. And the brown eyes were essentially um, made to represent white people and the blue eyes were made to represent black people. And what this was designed to do was to give preferential treatment through this sort of experimental container for a period of a couple hours, give preferential treatment to the brown eyed group um, and really discriminate basically the blue eyed group, be very harsh on them, remove their power, um, show immense favoritism, um, essentially be really mean and treat them, treat the blue eyed population poorly. And, you know, the, I think the brown eye, blue eye, um, by the way, if you want to look this up on YouTube, look up brown eye, blue eye experiment. And it's about a 51 minute video. It was filmed in 1968. So it's not the greatest quality, but, but it's clear enough that you can see it fully. And I think the eye color is a really potent way to, was a really potent way to separate them because you know, both eye color and skin color are based on a genetic predisposition that you cannot change. You are born with this, you can't change it. And it's all based on melanin, which is this pigment that determines the color of our eyes and also determines the color of our skin. 
And it was really potent because it made a direct comparison in that you can't change this. You are, you have, this is something that, that is a fixed trait. Um, and skin color and eye color are very tightly linked with the same pigment. So, you know, basically the blue eye group were essentially designed. It was, the experiment was designed to make them feel less smart, you know, less clean, lower their expectations, force them into very uncomfortable situations. And then essentially, uh, shame them for not being able to do things when they were pressured in unnatural conditions uh, to fail. And, you know, it, it, they did a few things like, you know, bringing, um, removing their independence and sort of a, a, a adult nature by calling, you know, for example, for the men, they would call them boys or fool or bluey, right? Call the blue eyed people bluey. And I think it's a, there's a lot of great parallels for how we culture or how our culture in the past has used derogatory terms for the black community. And I think, um, you know, they didn't give them any respect and it was so interesting to see how, how hard it was for these kids to handle this just for two hours. Yeah. Knowing that it's an experiment that it can end, that it will end and it can end anytime. And some of them broke down and it was just, obviously it, it, you know, this was done in 1968. So I don't think that the world looks exactly like this, but I think there are some vestiges and traces of this in how society works today and seeing the extreme exaggeration of it allows you to detect those subtle things better. And I think it will allow me to detect those things better. So yeah, yeah. very interesting, very powerful. Yeah. And then there was one part in the video where one of the girls raised her hand and I don't know if you remember, but she stormed out. She was like, you, yeah. you know, like, they that person they can't defend themselves and all you keep doing is picking on them for you know and and it was just like yeah yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and it was you no know, it's and and like i told you in in podcast too i i don't know honestly i don't remember if i covered this but you know there's a certain privilege that I have also, you know, um, and I don't know if we talked about that. That might be something that we can bring up in the next podcast, but I have a certain privilege as well that we'll, we'll dig into, I guess, in the next one. But um, yeah, you know, I kind of stand in that gray area because of my being multicultural. So I've been able to kind of be in the, you know, each little group to see kind of like, you know, I've been in groups of, you know, my, my African-American brothers and sisters or my Caucasian brothers and sisters or my brown, you know, Middle Eastern brothers and sisters. And it's so interesting to hear the different perspectives of, you know, it's, it's really interesting. But yeah, it was, um, that was a really, a really cool experiment. And like you said, it was in the 60s. So think about that time frame also, like, it was he a lot of what we're dealing. I mean, it was, it was, it was heavy. What, mm -hmm. what we're going through now, it was kind of like, it was what they were. I can't, I won't compare and say it was the same thing, but. There's a lot of parallels. Like the height of what was happening, you know? Right. So what a great use of time for her to do that experiment. Yeah. One thing I found, you know, really potent was that essentially the blue eyed group were put in an environment where they were it was engineered for them to fail, right? Like the expectations of them were lowered. Um, based on the scenario, they were forced to live down to those lowered expectations. And then they essentially blamed their inability to live up to standard expectations on their eye color. 
So they engineered an environment designed for failure. They had a tough time succeeding and their failure was blamed on their eye color. Yeah. And I think that's a really powerful analogy in that we, and sometimes that, that blaming the failure on eye color in that case was not something that people even recognized they were doing. It was just based on the scenario, based on the environment, that was the natural occurrence and it was easy to blame it on the right color. Exactly. And, and I think that's a really powerful parallel to how some things are working today for, based on my perception of it. And I, and I think too, if you, if you, you know, you, if you think back, even if you go back to, you know, the first two podcasts that we recorded again, listeners, please, please, please tune in. Cause we really, you know, we want your perspectives too, but, um, we talked about a lot about slavery in the second podcast and we talked about how it started off a certain way just for servitude, right? Um, almost opportunities for people to, you know, pay off their debts. You know, they went into a contract, whatever reason, and then it had a sinister turn, you know, at some point. And if you think about slavery and you think about how long slavery was legal and then over here in America, now we're colonized and we have slaves that are, you know, actively colonized in America. You think about that Jane Elliott experiment and it's like, even when slavery was over and it it was abolished, you still have that same brown eyed, blue eyed perception that you're not good enough to do this. You're only good enough to work in a field you know what I mean? That's what you're good enough for. You're not good enough to be a house slave because you're darker. So we're going to let the lighter complected person serve us in the home. So then that creates tension between the very group itself. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's kind of sneaking into what I was saying. Like I've had a privilege as well within my own community. There's some people who won't <clears throat> pardon me, admit to that, but there's a privilege that lighter complected people have in our own community um, with our brothers and sisters. And so, you know, that's another discussion that we can talk about, but, um, but yeah. yeah. Programming. It's all programming, right? They, not only are you convincing people to perceive that group as different and inferior and not deserving, but the actual group themselves you know, when you go through those five stages of grief, at the end, it's acceptance. Because if you feel it's futile to fight it, you can actually begin to accept that that is the truth. Because that is the reality you've lived for so long and everything you're surrounded by. And I think that is also this sort of thing. You know, I heard someone speak the other day about how there's um, a hesitation for the black community to get into gardening and to get into farming. Yeah. And part of the hesitation is that this deep programming where it's like, we were forced to do that. We're beyond that now. And so it's, it's just this, this deep program that essentially has been, was so widespread is really, we need to actually like lean in and talk about it and think about it, which is uncomfortable as hell yeah. because it's really sad that that was even instilled in the first place. But until we actually encounter it, talk about it and review like what it is, put label, put labels on it and say, this is what it is. And this is how it's appearing today in our behaviors and our cultural mindset. It's going to be really hard to get rid of that stuff, to, to move past that stuff. And it's not that we want to dwell on the past. We have to be mindful of the past, but we also have to think, what are we doing today? 
what things are a problem today, knowing why those problems are there based on the past, but also thinking, how can we change this for the future? Because we know there's problems. Absolutely. I think everyone knows that. But until we identify them and create you know, new behavioral templates and new mindsets to kind of erase the old ones and replace them and update the software, um, we're kind of going to be stuck. Yeah, and that's and that's <clears throat> it's really it's a really tough uh, situation to be in because there's a lot of people that want to move on from it. I mean, I think everyone it's exhausting to live it. It's exhausting to you know you and I talk about all the time like the very I have so many stories. I mean, so many stories, and I'll share I'll share two with you guys today because we Crazy. didn't do it. But to live it, mm-hmm. it's exhausting enough. I've only lived the tip of the iceberg where I've been called names or I've been had, I've had teachers make jokes to me before, you know, that's the tip. I'm lucky that I can co that I can come home at night and go to sleep. You know, um, I'm lucky that I can behold my daughters before I lay down at night, you know, and there's some moms that didn't do that, that, that can't do that anymore. So I'm very fortunate in that respect, but, um, you know, I think, like you said, it it comes down to, like, we've built this, the problems that we're experiencing today didn't just come overnight. This right. is something that's been happening for a long time, and it's so exhausting to think that we're still in, the, in a more modernized state than we were 400 years ago. It's exhausting to live it. It's exhausting to read about it. It's exhausting to carry the the burden of another mom to cry with her, you know, because she's lost a child. It is exhausting. I, I have to admit it's very exhausting, but it's important to dig and to see why we're having those issues. And we're having those issues because, like I said, it's just modernized from mm-hmm. years ago. And you ha- and that is that those are facts we made a comparison before, like when you're building a, a building or a business or an entity and you have the land and you have the foundation, you have to understand we're at the peak of what's happening. So if you're wanting to find out why we're here, you have to dig through all the everything all the way down to the foundation. So there's some people that act in ways now that are based upon what they've been taught, their environment, how their family has raised them. So, um, I think everyone acts like that, whether most people just don't realize it, right? We do everyone. And so you have to, I think what's important here is not being dismissive of people's experiences. And especially when it's on, um, especially when it's on video, you know, the big difference between now and then is that everything is, is live now, you know, and I don't know, Nick, it's just so heavy. You know, it's hard to know that, you know, can you imagine like, oh, I'm going to lose my life on TV one day, you know, in front of millions of people, you know, like those are things, you know, that people shouldn't have to think about, you know, a mom shouldn't. I talk to moms that are like expected moms that are going to have sons. And it's really interesting to hear what are you more excited about? Like, what are you excited about? Or, or do you have any worries and you know, most of the time, the black women that I talk to or the Hispanic women or brown people, they're scared to bring their child in the world because they're scared they're going to die. They're not afraid of gaining weight. 
they're not afraid of, you know, I can't fit my jeans anymore. Right. That's scary. It's, you know, to think that my child doesn't have a future. And then it makes you think, wow, can you imagine? Like, one of my cats just had kittens four weeks ago, you know, and, and I think, oh, here's a litter of kittens. I'm going to sell them, you know, or if somebody just wants one, whatever. And I'm like, wow, like just to think at one point a mom was, you know, she hears her litter, you know, we're going to sit, you know, and it's like, you have to think about those things and um, to be able to fix what we have now. So I think um, one of the biggest problems we have right now is the police, uh, we have a lot of people that are expressing discontent with the way that police are handling, you know, arrests and um, disputes and things that are happening because it, we know that police are here to protect us. You know, we know that they're supposed to be here to protect us, right? Just like a shoe company is supposed to be here to make shoes that fit your feet. <laughs> right? Yes. You, you think. Have a that designs a heel. Okay. So you have to be able to, to think for yourself. Right. Um, So we know they're they're supposed to be here to help us. We know they're here to, to make sure the whole world is safe. But when you look at some of these videos, the way that they're handling some of these situations are not appropriate. And I've heard people say, Oh, well, if such and such would just comply, but when did it become okay to, execute someone for not complying now it's different if someone's like pulling out a gun or you know but if someone's like running away from you you know they're like way down there it's just kind of one of those things that wow like what would make you feel threatened enough if someone's running away from you and they're to shoot them you know okay let's dig into this because this is the this is a big juicy topic that deserves there are so many um, compartments to this. Like, and I'll give you one example. I kind of did a post a while back saying, you know, we're, we seem to be getting very divisive on, we're not making amends and connecting on, on the issue of race. Like it seems like everything I see, which is probably just a specific subset of reality, which is what we all see, right? Social media is an especially skewed one. But I said, why don't we focus on policing? Because policing is affecting everyone in a negative way. We're especially seeing the black community being negatively affected. And I have no doubts that they're probably being way more negatively affected than the white population, but there are a lot of white people that don't get as much news, but there's, there's bad shit happening to all people. So we have a magnifying glass on a subset of population, rightfully so. But if we all came together to deal with policing, because this is a cross racial issue, it is a uniting issue, right? Which affects us all. Every single human is affected by this. Um, Let's focus on that because clearly there's a problem there. And then I got a foot nerd email me and she's a very kind lady and her, she's part of a family, a policing family. Her son is a police officer. And, you know, she gave me this renewed perspective saying that like, there's a lot of people that are super angry and police officers feel more in danger now than ever before, because there's an animosity there. And you can understand both sides. You can understand why people are pissed. You can understand why police officers are worried. There is merit on both sides. So, looking at it from a macro perspective, it's like, okay, there will automate, there are always good and bad people. There will be bad police officers. There will be good police officers. I have a firm belief that there are way more good police officers than bad ones. I also have a firm belief that the, that the police officers who do the worst things is not just 
that police officer that is the problem. It is the framework that created that police officer and the world that that police officer interprets when he um, makes a stop or pulls someone over or is encountered. I think the biggest underlying thing based on what I've been listening to is there is a massive gap in the training that is provided to police officers. It is an extremely hard job. Is in, in, in a place with as many guns as the USA and with as much tension in the air at all times now as the USA is an extremely dangerous job and a very, and if you're not trained to deal with the level of requirement to do a job properly, there's going to be big problems, right? When a police officer stops uh, a, a black male and that black male is nervous, which he probably should be because in the past he may have had really negative encounters with police officers. So that black male is, is nervous for his life or for his safety or for the fact that something bad might happen that he was, isn't deserving of. So he's nervous. And the police officer walks up and he sees a nervous black male. And he has this preconceived notion in his brain that a nervous black male might mean he's guilty of something. It might mean he's, he could pull a gun out on me. Like these are just things that that police officer will think regardless of whether they're true or not, he should be able to act in a rational way under the premise of fear. This is what you need to be able to do as a police officer, just like you need to be able to do as a Marine. If he's not given training to do that, stupid things get done. And it's partially that, it might be partially the personal responsibility of the police officer. It is more so the responsibility of the system that created that human to do that job. So there's so many layers and it's like what is the layer we need to discuss and change and i think i'd love to hear your thoughts but my feeling is police officer training needs to be completely taken torn down and rebuilt in a way that is radically different because we have a radical problem that is being shown by all these different shootings and all these crazy things that make zero sense right 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 and i and i think too you know like you said erase the black and white, right? And just look at it as a human, a human issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about yourself. If someone were to just knock on your door right now and just say, you know, I'm just going to come in here because I have on a badge. Well, if you don't know your legal rights or anything, you're going to let that officer, you're going to think under that pressure, under that fear, like I have to, you may think I have to let this officer in here if you have right. no, like no, iota about any of your rights Mm -hmm. so this is more than just a black and white thing this is the thing that us as humans need to band together where it's not even humans against cops we're brothers and sisters saying brother you're messing up you know you need to straighten up that's all it is so it's not black against cops it's not white against cops it's not humans against cops it's when, when you love someone and when you are in this together, when you're in a family, you tell someone when they need to be accountable. Mm-hmm. True enough, we are all a product of what shapes us, our families, our homes, our religion, whatever that is. When you go through training, you become a product of that training. It, like you said, more times than not, it's a direct reflection of what's up top. Right. It's the leadership. It's the people in charge. And it's a direct reflection of those people. So that might be an area to look at. We don't know where they get their training. We don't know what qualifies them to be in their position, but we know that they're in a position to train the people whose boots are on the ground. Well, we all have to be able to contribute to the conversation about standards, like create a board of extremely smart, diverse people from different backgrounds 
that have some understanding of how to train first responders and in particular, maybe police officers, or maybe even people with a military background and essentially just say, let's create a new gold standard. Let's come at this with a blank slate. What are the gaps we're seeing? What are potential solutions in training that we can establish? And regardless of how expensive this is to do, it is so important. We need to do this. This is the new gold standard that gets rolled out across every police department in the United States and hopefully even in the world, because it really should just be a standard for the relationship that the protectors have with the protectees. That is really what it is. Well, what and is- and I think there is, is there, there, when you talk about that, that, that's really a really good point because I've had lots of conversations with some really wise and smart and just different people about when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to shoes, when it comes to people who have influence, um, what is the standard? And mm. sometimes people get, you know, people will say to me, oh, well, this is my perspective on it and I have a right to that and here's your perspective on it. So there's like this kind of crazy clash in that in itself because there are some people who believe that there should be a perspective of standard and then there's some people who believe there should be a standard. And I truly think there should be a standard when it comes to anything. I'll give you an example, kind of detour. I've been in healthcare my entire working career. Started off as an administrative assistant and um, at the front desk, answering the phone calls, making all, you know, scheduling all the appointments. And I love it. I love to meet people, to direct them to the right place, to be a resource. If I don't know it, I'm going to find it for you. And there's, in almost all my employers, um, except for my last one, you know, I got called into the office all the time for that. It was always, and this was the, the problem was you're, you're, you have too much patience with your patients. Like you, 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 <laughs> you treat them like humans. That <laughs> which is what all the patients would tell me behind closed doors. Like, thank you for caring or thank you for standing back a, a few, two seconds to let me cry. You know, right. that kind of thing. That's the standard. That's the standard. There's the no human standard. There, there's a human standard. There's no perspective on that. There might be a company's perspective and right. you may not have the time to do that within the parameters of your job in that company, but that's the standard. So, well, that means the parameters should change, not the human standard. This is the problem. Yeah, the parameters should. And some people settle for, we j- Ashley, we just don't have the time in the day for you to do that extra stuff. You know, it, right. it, you know, and it's like, well, and then I had to, come to a point where, like you said earlier, I started to believe that. I started to believe, okay, Ashley, I need to calm down. I need to not spend as much time. But then I realized, you know what? That doesn't mean that there's something wrong with me. That just means that maybe, just maybe, I'm on the wrong team. Sorry, Uh, Nick. That's okay. Sorry, my phone, or my phone, my charger fell out of my computer. (laughs) But yeah, I, uh, I realized that I'm like, Oh, okay. So I just need to find a better team. Yeah. You know, it, it's like uh, if you buy a part for a car, you know, you, it may not be the, the gasket that you need. It may just suffice for the moment, but eventually you're going to have to get the right gasket that's made for your car. And it just means that I had to find a team that appreciated the extra time that I took with patients, you know, um, and not just that, but it really helped a lot of patients heal. I found that the most healing came from when I 
spent time with them. Like I'd walk in a room and they'd have, you know, IVs full of whatever medicine to control this blood pressure or that. And it's like, they just need someone to talk about the domestic dispute at home. That's why their blood pressure is high, you know? <laughs> exactly. So I'm really saving you money. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to tie up the time. I'm just trying to address what everyone is missing. They're missing, you know, healing. They're missing the mental aspect. But anyway. Well, I think that's, you know, it brings back to the misalignment of interest, right? If the, the patient is coming there with the interest of healing and the company is providing a service with the, with the incentive of making money. Yeah. And when there's a conflict of between making money and working in alignment with the patient's interest, right, with the patient healing, um, the sad reality is that almost always the money prevails. Yeah. And that's a real shame because at the end of the day, providing a humane service uh, that really aligns with human-to-human -human connection is good for business if you look long-term. And I think so many companies only look short term. How much money are we making next week, next quarter, next year? And they're not thinking how strong of a community we'd have that will support us through thick and thin, right? Well, if the, if the economy- What's motivating everyone, you know? Right. Even if you are a person that's motivated by your spirit and your mo and humanity is what drives you to, to do better, if money still causes you to make the first decision to, to, for whatever, then it's money. That's, you know what I'm saying? It's money. You have to choose what motivates you. It's going to be the money or it's going to be, you know, the well being of whoever you're trying to reach. And although that may be a longer road and it may be more expensive because most of the time these, those people have to step out on their own. I'm sure like you as a physical therapist, you could go and make any physical therapist company look amazing you know and you could do wonders for them but there's a disconnect somewhere and you have and there may have been a part of you that realized that i have to remove myself and create what people are looking for the truth i have to remove myself and you have an obligation to that and so um going back to policing you may have been taught and educated through the academy or whatever, but you also have a responsibility to think for yourself. You have yes. a responsibility to say, you can't shake that booger off your finger and say, I <laughs> that's a great analogy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm not shaking that. You know what I'm saying? You can't at some point, you have to accept responsibility and be yep. accountable. And I think that there's a lot of people that don't want to be accountable. It's scary to be accountable. It sucks to walk around with your leg, your tail between your legs, because you have to admit to being wrong or hurting someone or looking at someone cry or, you know what I'm saying? That's tough. Or to look at someone and say, wow, I've hurt my brother or my family's hurt my brother or whatever the case may be. But you have to, that's the only way to grow is you have to say, you know what? I'm going to call a grape a grape. You know, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. Like, this is what it is. This is the truth. I'm accepting it. I'm stepping in it. I'm owning it. And now I'm going to fix it. Mm -hmm. And that's going to cause people to look at you weird. That's going to cause you to be 
you know, shamed and people to say you're this or you're that or whatever. But if you know what's right, you have a responsibility to that. Just like you, Nick, you, you know, when it comes to feet, imagine TFC, there was no TFC because you were working somewhere for a foot company and you knew the truth. You knew the truth the whole time and you just thought, well, I'm going to look weird to the world or I don't know how I'm going to do it. So I'm not going to do it. You know what I'm saying? Like you walked Mm -hmm. in that. You walked in that. And, I, and I'm not saying that to give you like a, a big head or anything, but I'm just trying to, I try to make analogies to help people to understand you have to be accountable. And so it's going to take, like you said, a complete destruction of the company to break it down and, and to figure out this whole system of policing. But it's also going, you have to understand it's going to take each and every single person to be accountable for their own actions. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, m- big change is intimidating and it's also inconvenient. And this is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Like to live a healthy life, you have to accept a level of inconvenience. To, to live a life that preserves the, the planet that we live on, you have to live with a certain level of inconvenience. And people look at inconvenience as the enemy, but it's actually, if you contextualize it, convenience is the path or, or in, slight inconvenience and being able to judge what inconveniences are worth pursuing or not is how you determine the path to health. And I think with policing, there has to be, because I think a lot of people hide behind, well, that's protocol or that's, that, that's just what we were trained to do. And I think there has to be, a level of admission that a protocol you create for a specific scenario does not take into account the context of every single scenario and a certain level of responsibility and and more importantly, empowerment has to be given the police officer saying that these are protocols we've created to help guide you on how to make decisions in the field. But these are not absolutes that you must follow under all circumstances because you as a police officer, as an autonomous representative for the protection of the people need to be able to make good decisions that may not align with protocols based on the context that you're in. And, and it can't be something people hide behind to make shitty decisions. They need to have a level of personal responsibility. And the thing is, is they have to be trained to exert good decision-making under conditions of duress. And this is a big missing element, right? Like, we have to we have to select for people who can handle a lot of shit and still act well. And I think all we're doing right now, selecting police officers is selecting, you know, it doesn't pay very much. So you're, you know, people aren't being, you're not attracting the best people. Um, I'm, a lot of these are assumptions. I don't know these for, for sure, but I've, I've listened to a lot of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. But, you know, with you saying that, I actually had a conversation once with a, um, he was a really young gentleman and I don't remember where I met him but he was a soldier he got hurt um and so they you know honorably discharged him but he had a post 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 traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. and but he said that when he went into the army he literally went out of high school and he said that all I did in high school I was a gamer and I loved shooting games and that's how the recruiter appealed to me. He just said, it's just like the games that you play. And he goes, oh my gosh, like this is like, I can do this in live time. And he said that when he like shot like the first person or whatever, it was like, oh, like this isn't like a game. And it's like, so right. you think about if that person could say that, how many other, you know what I mean? Like there's, yep. 
There's so many different types of people that are being recruited to go into the academy. There's people who are really looking to change the world, looking to protect, looking to serve. Um, and they're looking for those things. And those people will eventually, when they go in with a good heart, those are the people that will make those decisions to stand up for themselves or to, to remove themselves if the situation is, you know, or I don't agree with this, or they are the people that are able to say, you know what, here's protocol, here's policy, but I'm comfortable making a decision outside of that because I know what moves me. So you have to decide what, what reason are you here? What, what moves you every day? Is it fear? Because if you let an emotion like fear rule your actions, you're always going to make careless decisions. Um, podcast number, is it 51 or 52? Emo emotional intelligence? I think it's 51. Emotional intelligence. You have to be able to regulate your emotions. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to manage them. You have to be able to const like constructively direct it somewhere. So if you are a person that pulls up to a scene, whether you're a police officer, whether you're a mom like me, and you see a group of kids on the playground, if you know that you automatically get this sense of fear and you know that that's going to overshadow your ability to make a sound decision or, uh, you know, under that pressure, then it's something for you to think about. I'm not saying you shouldn't be an officer or a mom or a lifeguard, but when you're in decisions that are dealing with people's lives, police officer, lifeguard, doctor, you have to be that person to be honest with yourself and say, when I'm under pressure, I'm under fear, I spaz or I, you know, I, whatever. Mm -hmm. you, you just have to be able to know what moves you. And um, I think me seeing a lot of the, the shootings it just looks like a lot of fear. I'm afraid yeah. if he turns around, you know, I'm afraid if whatever there, there's no, there may not be a threat, but it just may be the fear, that energy, like, Oh man, if he turn, turns around or, Ooh, you know, like you said earlier, there's always, there's already this cloud of animosity right now. So I'm already on edge, you know, it could be a, a mixture of things, um, yep. but there definitely needs to be, a reconstruction in the way that um, the policies and standards and procedures are laid out. But ultimately each human being, you're responsible for your decisions and you have to be willing to accept that and, and go from there, you know? Um, yeah. And Jocko Willink is a, um, he's a military, I think he was part of, uh, he was a Navy SEAL, I think, but he was on the Joe Rogan podcast and he said that, you know, uh, the military really emphasizes training, right? Like the better prepared and the more you can find out your vulnerabilities, right? For example, your emotional vulnerability to fear where your body literally and your decision-making ability gets hijacked by the emotion that you are stuck in. You don't even know you're stuck in it because you're just in it. Um, going through case scenarios of how to deal with very difficult situations in mock scenarios to examine how you react that is like a big portion of what they do. That is most of what they do. And there is no parallel to that with policing. And he, he made a great recommendation. He said, if 20% of a police officer's time was time spent preparing them for difficult scenarios, if one out of five days per week, a police officer spent in a training program to better prepare them for the field, uh, that would be an extremely attractive potential solution to a lot of these problems. And, you know, I think, 
I always try and be radically open-minded and taking everyone's perspective now, way more so than before. And I'm figuring out that the more I do that, the more I realize how much more there is to that and really, really seeing that perspective. So, you know, I see a shooting where uh, a man has his back turned and gets shot in the back. Well, it's really easy to say, well, that police officer is a murderer. That police officer tried to kill that human being. Um, and that very well may be the case. But I think the more likely case is that police officer was scared for his life. It was not founded. He, they, there was no, you know, I'm just making up a scenario and this might resemble an actual scenario, but there was no reason for him to believe that person had a weapon. Um, but they were scared for their life. And so they shot that person because they got hijacked by the emotion of fear and weren't able to make a rational decision and take in all the data that they had experienced about the interaction. What was that person doing? Why was I called here? How were they acting? What was their emotional state? Did they show a weapon? Did they reach for a weapon? Like these are all pieces of data you got to put into the blender to decide what is the best decision I can make right now. And if you don't give yourself, if you're not trained to create that space to actually assess those options to make a good judgment, then, you know, that police officer is, his life is probably ruined because he wasn't trained right to handle that scenario. And yeah. he took away another life because of that as well. So that person, I have no doubt, has a, a level of personal responsibility that wasn't exercised. Yeah. But we also know that humans are just humans. We know how the primitive brain works. We know how powerful emotions can be from a, an evolutionary standpoint. And we need to have better systems in place to make sure that the right people are put in the right scenarios because yeah. shit like that happens when we don't make sure of that. Exactly. And, and, it, and it really, what's really sad about it is when you have someone right? Like you said, the very primitive mind, someone who's not necessarily young, but maybe just young in knowledge. Like maybe they haven't reached a, a level of um, knowing all about feet. They could be 50 years old, but this is the first time they've ever learned anything about foot health, right? So you have that where you have, they're expecting to learn something from someone who knows. They're expecting that you're, as the leader, going to lead them into truth, into uh, everything that's right. You're not going to do anything malicious or, you know, anything manipulative. Manipulative. <laughs> Mil manipulative. Yeah, <laughs> that's a weird one. So, but but what really is sad is when you have those people that come into that situation and because they're an adult and because they are accountable and they have to take responsibility, they almost have to take responsibility for your messed up system. And it's not fair. You know what I'm saying? It's really not fair. And I, no, I hear you. That's another important thing that I want, that I really hope to impart on listeners that, Sometimes you will make a decision based on the guidance or the leadership that you've, that you've been trained or, you know, or the experience that you have. And it, it's not your fault when, you know, blankety blank hits the fan and it's a direct reflection of the systems that were in place. And unfortunately, those people who had good intentions and that were trained under that are almost like a casualty of war, you know? Yeah. Um, Cause then they get thrown under the bus and the people who told them how to do that, just say that was a bad person. Yeah. Or, you know, I've seen it all the time and, you know, I've seen 
in a former employer that I work in, you know, they'll tell you, do this, do this. Oh, you went outside of policy or procedure. And then when stuff gets real, it's like they don't have your back because it's like, oh, well, you should have followed this guideline, you know, or, you know, or you should have made your own decision. And so you you're in this you're just torn. You're like, what do I do? Do I do I ultimately do I follow society or do I do I do what's right? And it comes down to that that's really what it comes down to when it comes to policing when it comes to racism when it comes to issues in business it comes down to simple you know right and wrong you know and people who are willing to work together as a team to correct things that are wrong and make them right and to come together and always have a collaborative spirit to continue making the right things right or making those things better, maybe more efficient. Um, Cause there's yeah. nothing wrong with being wrong. Exactly. But there is a lot wrong with being wrong and not having an awareness to try and make it right. Especially when you're dealing with, with the potential for very potent casualties. When people are dying, and you're not fixing, you're not making an honest effort to fix it at the same level. If there's a really big, if people are dying, that's a really big sense of urgency that there's some, that there's things that need to be fixed. And yeah. you can almost always assume that if that pattern of things that are going wrong is repeating itself, the layer you have to go to solve that problem is much deeper than what you've been trying to do it at. It is not, the superficial layer is the police officer who does the bad act. Yeah. The layer up from that is the group of officers that are his superiors and direct how he sees the, the, his role. The layer yeah. above that is the people who train him. The layer above that is the commanding chief. So if you're just sticking at the superficial level, oh, this cop did something terrible, you know, George, George, uh, George Floyd's killer or the police officer that did that, that is not, that is, I have no doubt that that is probably, he might be part of the problem. I'm not negating that, yeah, but sure. he is not the entire problem. Because we're seeing that repeated with different people in different areas. Let's wise up here. Yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. So that's really a lot that's been happening this week. It's been a lot of heavy issues with the way that police are handling some of the um, calls that they're getting. There's been a lot of, a lot more of, you know, shootings and things like that. And so it's, it's been a pretty heavy week, but, um, you know, we're here and we're making changes and we're offering a platform and resources for people to come and spend time with us and, you know, do what we can do, you know, and we can't change the world and we can't, we're not the experts and we don't have all the power, but, you know, we together can, we can change the world. You know, we can, we can do something. So right. one thing that, you know, going back to the, um, Jane Elliott experiment. One thing that I would like to unpack, because I think this has been an area that I don't quite have a full understanding, but I'm getting a much better grasp on now. And I think it's just, we haven't unpacked it enough to really see perspective is this, you know, they talk about in the experiment when people say, uh, I, when I see a black person, I don't see their skin color. And I want to go there because there's a lot to that, right? I think a lot of people are saying that with the intention, the intention when people say that is that I do not, because it's a, it's a very, it, there's layers to this, right? What they're trying to say is it doesn't matter to me, someone's skin color, I treat everyone equally, which is good. But saying I don't see someone's color 
is negating seeing a, a differences. Like differences are beautiful and should be embraced. Not seeing someone's skin color if they're black means you're trying to put them in the category of one single skin color, which is not good. And, you know, people that say, I don't see skin color, like I have a friend um, or even one of the foot nerds said, I was raised to not see people's skin color. I was raised to just see other humans. And I think the intention with that is good, but we're framing it as, you know, there's almost like this divisiveness that comes from that, from something that was well-intentioned, whether it was the right thing to say or not, in terms of the words used, words are always very limiting. But I think there's, you know, we just have to embrace differences and differences are good. They are what make us humans. We are not all the same, which is why we live in such an awesome place with, you know, with the fabric of society is because there are differences. They're beautiful. We need to embrace them. But I think we need to be better with our words because what can initially be said to be something that I think is good can be viewed as something like, well, you're not even, I am black. You yeah. have to see that. You have to acknowledge that. Yeah. And yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually had a um, years ago. There was a, a really sweet, 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 sweet. And when I say sweet, I mean <clears throat> give you a cavity sweet. <laughs> that's a great term. Oh, sweet. And um, and she was so beautiful. I always told told her how flawless she looked. But she was so beautiful. Um, she invited me to her home one day. And she was. How did having, you meet this person? What was your relationship with her? Oh, she was a coworker, but uh, okay. she was a coworker. But she was just the. She was just. She was just some kind of sweet, you know. I I don't know how to say it. That's okay. That says it well. Yeah, <laughs> but she um, she invited me to her home one day. She she bought a house and she was having a housewarming, and she's like, "I really want you to come." And so I go there and. I'm literally the only black person there or the only person of color. No biggie because, you know, I just vibe with everybody. So we're yeah. just having a good time and, you know, just, you know, it's just people, you know, just having fun. And um, so I walk outside and there's a group of people out there. I'm just going to give you the goods. Okay. I'm going to tell you the story. And so this girl, along with a couple of the other girls, they were like, you know, there's this guy over there in the corner and he keeps asking about you. He's a white guy. And um, then they start to ask, like, have you ever dated a white guy? You know, just all the, the little talks. Right. And so <laughs> we're all just having fun and whatever. And so we go back in the kitchen and this sweet lady, she goes. What did you think of that question? Just out of curiosity, when they say, have you ever dated a white guy? Is that a like, was there any thought to a deeper thought as to like, like, is that fine to say? Like, yeah, is that... right. Okay. Well, you know, I, it was okay to say, it was fine to say, because okay. keep in mind, like when you, when you're kids, you don't, you don't really see color when you're a child. So that right. whole, like, I don't see color. That's pretty valid when you're a kid, you know, you don't yep. really notice it until you're older. Um, but once you're older and you start to realize there's differences and then you start to realize that we have different experiences and struggles, I think that's kind of one of those things like, have you ever dated like a white person? Cause it kind of prompts like, how was that experience? How did your family, you know, and then it just right. kind of goes into that whole thing. Um, I had never dated a white guy. So I, uh, I said, no, I haven't dated a white guy. There was, you know, I told you guys in podcast number one, the white guy that kind of had a crush on me, but um, uh, I had never dated a white guy. And so she said, uh, but you know what? She's like, but you're, you're just not really black though. Like you don't really, 
you just don't really like you're not really black like i don't really see you as black Hmm. and the way that the context that she said it was more like you're kind of like all of us in the house you know you get along with all of us like you know you're black but we can invite you over and so you like everyone vibes with you so you're just like one of us and she said that same thing she's like i really don't see your skin color like i don't see you and i'm like how can you not see that I'm black <laughs> or brown? Right? Right. Like, like, how can you not see that? Even if you're colorblind, you could see black yeah. and white, girl. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've had a lot of, man, a lot of interesting stories. I can't wait to share them with you, man. There are some really interesting. Well, because even that is, an, is a prime example where I would guess that she was not intending to offend you. I would guess that she didn't even think that that was an offensive thing to say. Yeah. So what programming did she, like what shaped her reality to think that that, that, to think that that was just something that would, like what was her intention with that, right? Her intention was probably to say, you're just like us. I don't see differences. I don't treat you differently. You don't engage differently, which that part of it is good. But, but the part where she's like, you don't seem like a black person. It's like, well, what is your understanding of a black person? Like what interactions have you had that would make me seem different than what your framework or perception of a black person is. Like it's so, it's very weird because she negated differences with the intention of relating to you more. But why is there, why does that have to happen? Why does she have to discount your differences to feel a better connection with you? So I always just ask like, why would that person, I don't, because you know, I, I, I did it without you mentioning my skin color. Like the whole right. three hours we were hanging out, you didn't see right. color. Like no one, I mean, you could see that I'm, you know, colored, but the, we've just been having fun. So it's like, why at the fourth hour was it important to you to say like, you know, even if you were well-intended, like I've had other people make comments to me that were similar to like that, similar like that, but it was more of the stance of your the white part of you or whatever part of you that makes you lighter complected is what we like. And that's mm-hmm. the context that I've felt from the people, even though they've been really sweet people, they've been people that are sweet, that, you know, go to church that, you know, give to people. They're really sweet people. And like we always talk about, sometimes it's just something that you're so conditioned that right. you, it's programming. you have no. And so for that person, it's like, they're oblivious because of their conditioning, but they, as an adult, they haven't yet said, I'm going to take the time to really think about this stuff on my own. At what point do you say, I'm a product of my environment, but at some point you have to question that to make sure that that settles with you as an adult now that you right. can make decisions. Because at that point, it's like you're making, you're making remarks that are dismissive to the struggles that all of all of my brothers and sisters on any spectrum have experienced. Um, you have to even think in my lineage, my ancestors also experienced the struggle of interracial, like coming together. So there's, there's all sorts of struggles, you know, that we all go through, but I've definitely had a lot of people make comments to me in the context of not seeing my skin color or not seeing me as a black person or seeing me as lighter is prettier or because your hair isn't the typical, like, you know, I've had all those comments made to me and, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, no, I'm proud of that part of me too. You know, I came right. out looking like I look, but you know, I'm proud of every, every part of me. Um, right. 
but like you said, sometimes they mean well and they just don't think about it, but you know, it's something to think about. Right. For sure. And I think one thing from back to the Jane Elliott experiment, one thing she said, and she framed them as freedoms, but I would, um, I wouldn't frame them. I don't think it's really freedoms because freedom, I don't think is the appropriate word, but it's the um, ability or the permission. I think permission is a better word. And what she said was, as a white person, you have permission to be ignorant about those who aren't white. And you also have permission to deny that you're ignorant. And this is, those were really deep. Like I almost had to sit with those for a couple of minutes to be like, wow, you know, like you don't have permission you like people, black people don't have permission to be ignorant about white people because white people frame how their world works. Yeah. But as white people, we have the ability or the permission to be ignorant about others that look different from us. And we also have permission to be ignorant about the fact that we're ignorant. And that's very like that story that you just said is a prime example of that. Yeah. And I'll so I think we all have a responsibility to mend that ignorance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll tell you a, a quick story. Um, I was going to say it for the end, but while I'm thinking about it, uh, when I first moved to Texas, we had, I lived across the street from a couple of neighbors. They were white and they were the funniest people I've ever, I mean, oh my <laughs> gosh. They, I called them Barbie and Ken because she was, you know, blonde hair, you know, just a, bar- a Barbie all day long and her husband. Yep. And so uh, one day, I didn't have school and she said, do you want to go with me to my mom's house? And I, I'm like, yeah, I'll ride with you. I'm 18 or 19. And she's like probably early forties, you know? And so, um, I go with her to her mom's house and as we're, we're on our way there and she tells me, she's like, you know, my mom and I, we really don't get along. Cause you know, I have a, my mouth is unfiltered and my mom's back from back in the day. And so, you know, but I, I just want to check on her make sure she's still breathing type thing. And I'm like, okay. So <laughs> seems like a nice thing to do. Sure go kicking and then we can dip. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we get in the house and, um, her mom answers the door and she kind of looks at me first and she says, she goes, well, mom, you can say hi. And she goes, hi. And then she goes, well, mom, you look great. How are you doing? She goes, oh, I'm doing good. You know, I just, she holds out her hand like this and she goes, oh, your nails are pretty. She goes, yeah, a little N word girl did it for me today. No. Yeah. She's like, yeah, the little, the little, the little blank at the nail shop. She did it for me today. And she was like, mom, you can't say that. Like, that's not okay. And her mom was like 80 something years old. And this was back in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we left, she was like, I am so sorry. Like, I'm I, I'm so sorry. Like my mom, you have to understand she's from back. And I'm like, you don't have to explain. But like you said, it's the conditioning. Like it was mm-hmm. nothing in 2007 to say that in front of her daughter while I'm there. Like, oh yeah, this just little blankety blank girl at the nail salon did it. You Here's know? the problem. That lady does not spend any time around anyone that that can tell her that that's not okay. So she, you know, like, cause I always try and think like, how does that person think that's okay? So she's clearly never been told that that's wrong. Although I'm sure her daughter's told her that before. So very, yeah, programming. It's just like, she's probably said that term so much because her parents probably said it all the time. And, it and was- so it's in there. 
okay. So it's like, well, if that's been okay for X amount of years and it wasn't unlawful, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a problem. Like it, I could say it, like, why at 80 years old are you telling me I can't say this? Like I'm 80 years old. I've lived my life. I can say what I want to say. So it's just like stuff like that, you know? Um, what do you, do you think, uh, I'll just call her Barbie because I don't know her name. Do you think Barbie would have said what she said when her mom said that if you weren't there? Yes. Yeah. She was, um, she was, she was the black sheep of her family. You know, no pun intended, but she was because she was very <laughs> outspoken about stuff like that, right. you know, about things that that she would. That's exactly why she, her and her mom were would butt heads all the time. And that was one thing that she said, you know, that's one of the reasons my mom, she's very old fashioned. She's very set in a lot of ways. And she doesn't believe that, you know, there's a need for change. And it was one of those things. So, you know, those kinds of things you can't you would be fighting against the wind trying to, you, you say what you need to say. Like she said, that's not okay. Yep. And leave yep. it at that, you've done your part. You know, you're responsible for saying that. And that's, you know, had, she's, had she not said anything to her mom, those, you know, that's another topic that a lot of people talk about, the ones that are silent. Right. Um, imagine if she hadn't said anything. You know what I mean? I'd be thinking to myself, well, wow. Like, well, right. how do you feel? Or right. do you not, right. like, you didn't care enough for me, even though you love your, that, that's your mom, you may not want to be disrespectful or talk back to your mom or whatever. But at some point as an adult, like we've been talking about, you make a decision as an adult to say, you know what, I love you, mom. I've never ha had an argument with you. I've always been terrified of you. I've never talked back to you, but I'm not going to stand for this because that's not cool, you know? And yeah, so and I think love is a desire for someone to be better. Like if you love yeah. your mom, you want your mom to be better. You want your mom to be respectful. You want your mom to be someone you're proud to show to other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so that is love. About. Yeah. Which was what we talk about all the time. When you love, you have to hold people accountable. We talk about this every podcast. So no matter what it is, all this is, is just a matter of, you know, everyone's looking for the problems, but you just have to be accountable completely accountable for your part and what you can do. And even if that means saying, dang it, I knew I shouldn't have made that decision or I knew I shouldn't have went this place or whatever, whatever, but just be accountable, you know? So. Yep. I agree. And it's, and there's a difference too in how holding someone accountable can be done in different ways, right? You can do it through the lens of fear and control, or you can do it through the lens of love and growth, right? Like you, she could have said to her mom, you're the worst person ever. I can't believe you said that and stormed off. And like, you think her mom's going to change with that? Probably not. Um, or there's another thing to say, mom, I love you, but you can't say that. That is not something you're allowed to say anymore. You might've said that when you were younger, it might've been accepted. It was, ne it should never have been acceptable based on, you know, you have to understand where that word came from and, you know, like. So there's different ways of holding someone accountable. I think when you do it with love, you might have a slight negative emotion for a short period of time. But if you intrinsically know that that person told me that because they love me and they have my better interests in mind, um, then that's a different paradigm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and people it only change when they feel loved. So there's only one way of doing it. <laughs> they do. And also when you, like you said, when you step to them with love and kindness, it's different. It's different. Um, because if you're telling someone to change and you're being combative and you, 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 it's like, well, what am I going to change into that? Like, are you telling me that you're the example of what I should be changing into and you're yelling at me or you're 
being unkind. Like, no, I'll stay over here in my comfortable corner doing what I'm doing, you know? So anyway, yeah. Cool. cool. Stuff. Yeah. Well, let's, are you good to anything else you want to talk about the um, blue eye brown eye experiment? Cause I had a couple other things, but we kind of already covered them. Um, yeah. I think it's a great awareness um, video, like just a really yeah. good one for people to watch to so just expand like it definitely changed my understanding and awareness of like you have like you have to go in knowing that that is an extreme example of probably a, a way of life that existed or a, it definitely existed at some point. It's not that bad anymore, but subtle remnants of that still exist in the deeper programming of how we live our lives today. And exactly. I think it's very eye opening just to take the perspective of like, wow, that would really suck to be the in the wrong end of of a of a world like that 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 well, essentially is a parallel because she has another video and i intended to tell you about it but and it's very short but she's in an auditorium i don't know if you saw it um but she's in an auditorium full of students and she says i'd like all, any of you in this room if you want to be treated like a black person is today in society uh, if you'll just please stand up or show your hands. And she says, maybe you guys didn't understand my question. If you are in this auditorium and you would like to be treated just like as a, a black person in society today, she didn't say anything else. She just said, if you want to stand up and no one raised their hands, no one stood up. Hmm. And she said, no, that shows me that, you know, there's a problem and that you don't want to be a part of it. So why are you willing to accept when it's happening to someone else? Yep. Wow, that's powerful. It was really powerful. I gave so me goosebumps. I, I think what what the what Jane Elliott did was, you know, when you use the, the word slavery, it sounds so archaic, and it is an older form of whatever you want to say, right? So there's not actual slavery. But when you hear people say, this is modern day slavery, and there's some people that say, that doesn't make any sense. What Jane did was she brilliantly illuminated how slavery is, how it's morphed, and how the current systems that we're operating under, healthcare, education, those entities, how the former slavery system is affecting us now. And so she's showing basically how the black America, how the African American community feels that they're being treated, you know, how they, and so yeah. she's, she's highlighting that. So although the community isn't picking cotton now, right. And we're not on a plantation. These are the remnants of that. These are the remnants of you were never good enough to be in a house. You're only good enough for manual labor. Now that the shift is from servitude, you know, to a more sinister act, the system that we're operating under now has been built on that, on that you're not good enough or you're still here at the start, you know, at the start line and we're up here. And so that's, she really illuminated the, the issue of how black people are treated based on the historical implications of slavery. And so I really appreciated her, her experiment. Yeah. And I think the word inequality might be a more, accepting term for people to be able to actually tune into right when you say modern day slavery 
I think a lot of people tune out because they discount if they don't understand how that actually presents itself, then they might take it take you as being sensationalistic in the way you're explaining it. Yeah. Which based on your perspective, you're not trying to be sensationalistic. You're trying to reflect the truth, but it's almost like we have this, you know, this building has a foundation of inequality. The, the base, the basement of the building is inequality. We've built a significantly better building. We've rebuilt, we've changed out some of the bricks, changed the plumbing. We've updated a lot of the things in a very good direction. And, and I don't think, I don't think not admitting that, like we need to admit that, right? People that say, oh, it's the same today as it was a hundred years ago. It's like, well, no, it's not, but it's not good. It's not perfect today. Uh, so we need to like, we love speaking in polarizations because that's what gets ears and attention, but that's also yeah. what scares people away and brings us further apart. So the foundation is built on inequality. We have a way nicer building, but we also need to acknowledge that there are still things that exist today that are, that are relics of that foundation and that need to be talked about, right? Like, we need to actually have open discussions of like, what are the actual things? Okay. People love to say systemic racism and there may very well be some, I think there's probably correct elements of that, but we also say like, okay, sure. That exists. That is still something that floats in the air today, but what specific things are the problems? Because when we address specific things and talk about specific things, we can change specific things. And we just kind of work down the list of being like, what can we change? What can we actually change? Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. That that was actually probably the most perfect way to explain that, that the foundation is on inequality. So you're right. And that and that was the whole point of me saying the the modern day slavery, because it's not slavery, you know, it's not the actual it's not actual slavery anymore. And like you said, that word just is exhausting and it scares people away. And that's definitely not our intent. But just to you know, with you bridging that gap, you know, removing the modern day slavery and just replacing it with inequality actually makes that a lot more understandable in today's mm-hmm. terms, how it is affecting all of the, the, the things because of that education, healthcare, whatever. Um, so I, yeah, that was really, really cool. I appreciate that. Cause I, cause I think it also pairs down to other areas where inequality is present, right? Like, like we, we're, we're talking about racial discrimination, but like, women and like the the inequality of like standards of what women are expected to do with their bodies versus what men are expected to do there's a big problem there too it's obviously not a priority problem right now because we've got bigger problems yeah but i think it also just makes people mindful that that foundation is not just unequal towards you know slavery is like the extreme version of inequality it's the biggest inequality of power of dignity, of right, of the acknowledgement of human rights. And so, yeah, that was a thing. And there's still elements of that. But the inequality word, I think, is more digestible for people and also expands the conversation to be like, there's multiple, there's five inequality problems right now. The biggest one is this one. This is what we need to talk about right now. But we also need to know that once we're done talking about that one and we've made good progress, then the counterbalance changes. Like, this is the big problem now. And there's many realms of inequality that we have to fix, whether that's, you know, based on, you know, income wealth, um, whether that's based on being male or female, whether that's based on how people of different sexual orientations are treated. Like there's, there's all these things that we need. We should always be trying to find the biggest problem and solving that. And once that's no longer the biggest barometer, let's go in the next one. We have to know that they're all there and be able to troubleshoot which one should be the biggest priority. But we also just need to like, People have to admit that we live in an unequal world and we're not, we're not. And, and also I think 
it's also important to say that we're not all going to be equal. Like no society has ever been such that everyone is completely equal, has equal amounts of wealth, has equal amounts of opportunities, has equal amounts of whatever. Yeah. But, but massive disparities, inequality is the problem that we need to address. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And like you said, what was really important, doesn't matter what group is, you know, if this group is going through it now, we fix it. If this group of women feels that they don't have a right to vote and they're human and they should have a right to vote, then we fix that. We go address those women. You know, it's not it. If you think that this is the only way that we can't fix this, there was, a, um, I have to remember, I, I don't know his name, but he says the only way that we can't fix this problem is if your problem is rooted in the, the true desire to like deeply oppress me. That's the only way that we can't solve it. So if right. you truly are an, like, if you're for the oppression and I, you know, no one expects you to be the person to say, um, to, to make the, the, the biggest change right now. You know what I mean? We mm-hmm. understand that we welcome, we want the perspective. We need the perspective. We, I, we'd love to understand your perspective. Your perspective is just as golden and valuable as the next person. Yep. Um, and it doesn't make you any different or, you know, any less of a person. It's just that there's some people that you're going to be able to, that are going to get it. And there's some people that like you talked about a while back about different thinkers. You have some people that are just, they want to stay in their bubble. They're comfortable. And it's going to be harder to try to have that person to understand a perspective. And I think that's why it's really important also to lead with love and kindness, you know, so that mm-hmm. you create that space where, you know, you can both come together with such different perspectives. Um, Even one, one last thing I'd like to say about change is I think it's, it's easy to think that these are the people who change things. Right. Oh, that like the politicians or the police chief or whatever. And what they discount is that like, okay, here's a pendulum. It's in the wrong direction. Change happens when enough stuff goes here so that it goes like this. It's not some massive ball that gets put there. It's not one person or group of people that does that. It's all of us being one little speck to accumulate to be a big enough weight that change happens. So change actually requires all of us to take part in doing Obviously, we don't have to take on all the responsibility, but we should have a certain understanding of how much personal responsibility do I carry as a human living in this world with an understanding that there are problems that that need to be solved. And just knowing that I can play a small, infinitesimally small part of that change. And in fact, if everyone takes that mindset, change happens really quickly. Absolutely. Agreed. Well said. Well said. Yeah. Thank you. Let's so stop. let's let's hear if you're if you're willing to share i'd love to hear some more stories because uh, your stories are like the highlight and i don't know how we missed that last time but let's make I, up for it um you know and these stories are just all these are lovely people but i i you know i told nick and i discussed talking about these stories because i think it's really important to for people to try to hear like some of the things that we, that we, you hear it all day long, you know, you hear it from different people on TV, but you know, I, I just want people to understand that I too, like go through the same thing. I was in in high school once. This is my story. And (laughs) thank you for clarifying. (laughs) And I went to the office and there was uh, one of our attendance clerks and she was, 
she was always so nice to me. And this, this, that's the truth. She was always so nice to me. I mean, if I was late to class, I'd go in there and she'd write me a, you know, tardy slip, you know, like she was really, really sweet to me. Sweet, sweet white lady. And one morning I went up to the office for something. Don't remember what it was, but I ended up kind of hanging out in the office a little bit. And um, she goes, you know, I want to tell you a joke. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> So this is the attendance clerk. And she goes, why don't black people take medicine? And I was like, whoa. This is already not a good joke, but okay. Oh, like, whoa, where did that come from? And I was like, uh, why? And she's like, because they don't like to pick the cotton. Like in the top of the med, like when you open a medicine bottle and there's like a cotton ball there. What a terrible joke. And I'm like, okay. You know, and I'm just like, oh, okay, great. Like, I'll go back to algebra and learn how to, the Pythagorean theorem, you know, but I'm just like, you know, so, so, so and yeah. although she was so sweet, I mean, she was so sweet. And I mean, I never, ever had an issue with her. My mom loved her and maybe there was some level of comfort mm -hmm. where she felt like she could say that to me and maybe not another person. And maybe that, that might've been part of it. I don't know, but. At what point do you use the power of the pause and say to yourself, self? <laughs> I don't know if any of her people actually did pick cotton, you know, or maybe that's a really sensitive subject for her, you know, and it's, I know she was well, she, she meant well, you know, but. Well, I mean, that's just another glaring example. It's just like such silly lack of awareness. Like, oh, number one, I bet you that joke was told within her family a bunch. And it probably got, and the sad part is it probably got a lot of laughs. So she thought, she intrinsically thought, this is a good joke. I love this person. This person is really nice. I'm going to tell her a joke. And she had no idea how offensive it was. That's the sad part. So how, do, how does, like, how does those perspectives get changed? And obviously there's a power imbalance there. She is an adult. You're a kid in high school. But, you know, just every time... Like, that's a glaring example. I think there's way more subtle examples that also need to be brought to light and also corrected. But, like, if someone said that to me, I said, that's extremely offensive. I, do you know that that's ex very offensive to the history of black people? Yeah. And that person's probably going to be like, oh, my God, I never knew that, which yeah. is sad. But also, if that person's never told that, they're going to keep telling it because there's no reminder that that is a problematic joke. And then who – and then the, the struggle is who's responsible? Is right. it because – she truly means well and that's literally just the result of her environment or is she responsible because she's an adult because you have to understand too you might have someone that may be raised in uh an environment where um all they see are their parents cooking meth on the stove okay this is just a i'm just putting out an example there right right so this person, all they see all their life from the time they're a little big kid is mom and dad making meth and selling meth out of the house well, then that's all they know. Mm -hmm. At what point do they get older and say, well, that's all I know. All I know is how to make meth and make money off of meth. So I'm not responsible because that's all I've ever been taught. You can't hold right. me accountable. You know what I'm saying? It, it's yeah. a different situation, but the fundamental principle is the same. It's at what point do you say, man, you know, like for yourself, Nick, I know for myself, there's been times that I can remember in my life as an adolescent, as an adult, 
where I think back to something my mom said or my dad said, and I'd go, why did they think that? Or why did they do that? And it would cause me to inquire as an adult, right? My own, based on my experiences and my feelings. So again, part of that's curiosity. Like you have to be a curious human to want to engage with asking questions, right? Like I'm a firm believer that your life is shaped by the questions you ask. If you never ask questions, then the shape of your life is exactly what you were given by the people who raised you. And you can never go beyond that if you don't know how to ask questions. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a very, that's a really good question. And I think that is what is happening now because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who are being held accountable for the deep past that is affecting us still today. And so it's hard to rid and almost separate it because you have a group of people now who are, some are still acting based on the past because that's how they were shaped and they don't know differently. They, they almost mm-hmm. think it's right or their family may make the, they, maybe they don't want to go away from the norm, but that's exactly what we're experiencing right now is who do you hold accountable? You know what I mean? there's an accountability factor. And so I think that just takes a lot of people, you know, there's no, nothing that I can answer for that right now or yourself, but it's just a question that I hope that everyone, when they leave, they could think about that. Just Mm -hmm. think about that factor. Like, Hmm, who do I hold accountable? It's just a great question. You know, something to think about over your, uh, wood roasted, uh, coffee beans from the Russian mountain valleys of, Czechoslovakia or wherever you <laughs> is that where coffee comes from <laughs> <laughs> there's probably coffee from there let's be real cool well, that was a great really story thank you for sharing that i really enjoyed it and um please everybody you know listen to our other podcasts and we have a couple more coming for you with some you know um hopefully healing conversations to bridge everyone together and um nick you know, just please stay being, being an awesome human. Same to you, Ashley. I appreciate these conversations. Like these are, I appreciate these because we would probably just have these conversations. And I think knowing that they're going to be recorded probably makes us inquire a bit deeper. I know it makes me want to do more research and ask myself more questions so that we can chat about them. And uh, your willingness to share stories is always, I'm very appreciative of it because I, I really think they do make people think. And, you know, maybe someone hears that and um, they'll, you know, whether it's the person, like the person at the party that you talked about, maybe they'll encounter that scenario at some point in their life and they'll think of the story you told and it'll make them rethink how they would have framed something in a way that makes them more aware of how something they wouldn't have previously deemed to be offensive might actually be offensive and they didn't see that perspective before. So I think if one person listens to this and they change one single behavior, I think we've done a good job at recording these and putting them out into the world because uh, the change happens in, in subtle ways, but it does happen if people are willing to ask themselves questions. So just ask yourself questions and, and it leads to power. That curiosity can lead to um, a lot of changes and a lot of uh, exponentially increasing changes. Uh, Once you see how, how fun it is to change and how good it is, how good it feels to improve as a human being and become more mindful of other humans. um, It sets off a chain of dominoes that I know that I've felt. And I think I've heard other people uh, the same thing where they're like, "Uh, yeah, what else can I do? How, what else can I learn? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm happy to be in this space and I'm happy for the opportunity. And 
I can't wait until the next one. Me too. You want to finish with our uh, our special sentences? Oh, our special sentences. Have you got that handy? No, that's okay. I'll say I'll say it this one, and then how about you say it next one? Okay. Wait, awesome. wait. You have to wait because I I know that it's on here somewhere. Hold on. Okay. Okay, that's okay. I'll wait. Look, you can edit this part out if you want to, okay? I don't edit these things, partially because oh, I'm lazy, really? Par- partially oh, because it's just way more real when we don't edit it. <laughs> and, I, and I think people appreciate that. Okay, I found it. Okay, beautiful. You want to say the first one or you want me to say the first one? I'll start off. Okay. We, are all, we all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate. Has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We've developed speed, but we've shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. And more than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. Talk soon. Much love. Yes. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. And we'll catch you next month, next episode. And we'll have more stories from you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.